0: I went to this meeting and everybody started speaking Italian, and I got the gist of it. But it's like, uh, okay, I gotta tell them right now that I'm not from there.
1: This is Van Collar. <laughs> We're at <the> West Coast. <laughs> My name is Moamir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a public opinion research dynamo. He is a well renowned commentator in this city. His writing has appeared in the Vancouver Sun, the Globe and Mail, National Observer, Business in Vancouver, the Tai, and elsewhere. You'll often see him on your TV and hear him on the radio across all the major outlets, and I literally mean all of them CBC, Global, CTV. You name it, he's their go-to guy. He's an election forecaster who is nearly always on the money. He's the president of Research Co. He is Mario Canseco, Mario. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. It's a fun time to be a public opinion researcher. Uh, lots of people taking surveys, everybody with an opinion about what is happening
1: in the world, and <laughs> it's a fun job right though, I got to say. I love that. Well, you know what? I've been looking into Some of the data that you've been collecting. And as always, you know, you've had your finger on the pulse of what's happening in this province and this city. And I think there's some optimism about getting over this first wave of COVID 19. But one troubling trend that we're seeing is the rise of racist attacks, racist harassment, again, physical or verbal. You reported that. 24% 24% of BC residents who are East Asian descent say that someone directed racial slurs or insults at them during the pandemic. In addition to that, what I also found quite interesting was that you said that 24% of people who are of South Asian descent are reporting that someone directed racial slurs at them. As a brown guy, I'm under no illusion that outward racism is commonplace, but Are those numbers higher in the pandemic than what we would expect normally, or are they about the same? It's definitely
0: higher than what I've seen before when I've asked questions of this nature. Uh, We looked at discrimination in British Columbia last year, Mm -hmm. and the numbers are definitely lower for that when we ask questions about your own lifetime. So, you know, all the time you've been here as somebody of East Asian descent or or South Asian descent, uh, have you faced these difficulties at work? Has somebody told a racist joke in front of you, and the numbers are usually lower than 20%, but we're talking about an entire lifetime, you know, all the time that these people have been here in British Columbia, and they remember certain episodes. So Mm -hmm. to have 24% of them, one in four, saying that they have been the victims of a racial slur or an insult since March is uh, definitely a number that I didn't want to see.
1: So we're basically looking at a three-month time period
0: Yes, right? uh, exactly, since since the beginning of, of, of this pandemic. What makes this even tougher is, you know, this is a time when we're not supposed to be out. There's fewer people who are going out, and essentially, if you have to be working, if you have to go to the grocery store, so the opportunity for human contact is lower than it's been, uh, let's say, I six or seven months ago, and you still see numbers that are this high. So those uh, of us who are going out or who have to do something outside of our homes... Uh, even if there's fewer of us, it doesn't mean that the opportunity for a situation like this one to happen, for somebody to direct racial stores at you, is minimized.
1: Yeah. So your social interactions are actually decreasing, but the racialized incidents are increasing to such a level that, you know, they're really pushing those numbers up.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I think, unfortunately, Uh, It's an easy target for many people who are dissatisfied because, uh, you know, they feel that this COVID-19 pandemic has uh, wreaked havoc on their lives. Uh, But it's something that you see at other levels. You know, when I've done surveys related to discrimination in, in the workplace, for instance, most of the problems start to happen when you start to stand apart from the rest when you start to be Mm. the one who's being considered for a race uh, when you start to be the one who is doing things differently and that's the moment when racism appears at the corporate level well this is a person who wasn't born here maybe i don't like this person's accent maybe we shouldn't be giving this person too many things it's because somebody else wants what you have and at this particular stage there's many bc residents who are saying if it wasn't for china we wouldn't be facing this situation, so I'm going to be upset at everybody who I believe is from East Asia. For the record,
1: off on a tangent here, I love your accent, Mario. I'm a big fan. <laughs> now, back to the matter at hand, of course, th- this is very serious and it's uh, very saddening in a lot of ways. We've seen a lot in the news about anti-Chinese harassment, which you just discussed, sometimes violence, sometimes graffiti The premier has even addressed this issue. A lot of people in government are speaking up against it. When you speak to people of East Asian descent, what are they telling you that they're experiencing? Well, one of the things that we notice is uh, there's
0: definitely... A way to differentiate, and this happens not only with uh, residents of British Columbia, of East Asian descent, but with everybody, mm-hmm. uh, to make that difference between what is happening related to COVID-19 because of the performance and the behavior of the government of the People's Republic of China and how that is uh, essentially not necessarily uh, something that has to do with every single person who is of Station descent. So mm-hmm. when I ask British Columbians uh, or even Canadians questions like that, you know, most of them say we shouldn't refer to this as the Chinese flu. Uh, We should be mindful that this is something where we want to get more uh, information and some uh, uh, sort of uh, contrition from from the government in Beijing. Uh, But it doesn't mean that we should continue to say things like that. And, you know, people who are aware of this and who grew up under those governments are keenly aware of the differences between, you know, being from a specific place and Mm -hmm. actually representing the government. And, you know, we've seen a little bit of that over the past four or five years, particularly when we had all of those discussions. Discussions about the housing crisis and all of the money that was coming in from China. It wasn't something that could be used to describe an entire people. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're starting to see the same problem happening here when it comes to COVID-19, because it's an easy target. And some BC residents, not all of them, of course, uh, believe that it's fair game to say that uh, somebody who's here is the exact same person who is responsible for the fact that your life is no longer the way it was back in February.
1: Now, I have not heard much about the harassment towards the South Asian community or people of South Asian descent, why the spike there I think it's a combination of things uh, one of them is you know fear
0: of the unknown there's definitely a situation where people are dissatisfied with the way things are going uh, it's very easy to look at the news in a strange way and start to look at places where the where this virus might be hitting harder uh, but it's it's definitely not something that is rooted, not even in an entire comprehension of the way in which this pandemic has happened. You know, we haven't seen reports of anybody harassing people of Italian descent, for instance. So it's very complex, and it has a lot to do with the insecurities of the people who are dissatisfied that their lives are not how they used to be.
1: Yeah, so is this one of those things where economics plays a large role? Because we know that when unemployment goes up, things like suicides go up. You know, it it has an effect on relationships and marriages. There's all these social effects that come out of economic distress. So when we look at racism towards the East Asian community, the South Asian community, is the one commonality that out of economic distress, we start to see these ugly, overt, racist actions? I think that is the moment when it definitely
0: becomes uh, something that is absurd more often than it was before. You know, you have the microcosm at the corporate level. You have certain moments uh, when people might have been subjected to this type of slurs. But now that you have a scenario where everybody has been affected, it's a lot easier for people to, uh, you know, go to that side of their brain, to that part of, your, of their psyche and mm-hmm. claim that it's something that is related to race. Uh, It's interesting what is happening in other places uh, as this pandemic continues. Uh, Japan, for instance, uh, has seen the suicide rate come down over the past few months because of family togetherness. It's no longer about the pressures that you used to have as far as oh I have to get into that university, I have to get straight A's, I need to honor my family with all of these things, now those pressures are no longer there and people are actually happier. Whereas in North America what we're seeing is the opposite. Now that I'm stuck at home and I'm getting upset and I'm really angry at things and I have to go out to buy groceries and I have to wear a mask and you know the first person who I believe looks different, I'm going to blame for my misfortune. It's entirely unfair.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I believe that racism exists in various forms. I, I do believe that biases can be embedded in, into institutions, into our culture. But when I look at those incidences of someone who just attacks a stranger, and we're talking about violence at this point, and even someone who yells something you know really gross at, at a stranger, someone they don't even know. What can we say about those perpetrators? Is there any data about them and mental illness or mental wellness? Well, we've seen a little bit of the
0: qualitative uh, data from some of these incidents that we've seen. Uh, Part of the problem is it's very difficult to actually police this, particularly when you have a situation such as defacing something with graffiti. Uh, It's very tough to actually catch those who are responsible for this. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mental health plays a role in this, and I think it has a lot to do Uh, with the difficulties of surviving in a city like ours. Uh, It's not easy uh, to be here, to be able to pay for things, to be able to find a home, to be able to make ends meet. Uh, Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen all of the rises, uh, this humongous rise in in, in opioid uh, um, consumption, uh, Mm -hmm. whether it's something that is coming from your doctor or something that you're getting off the street. And it definitely... Uh, makes us more mindful of the discussions that we need to have about mental health. You know, it's not something that you can deal with by throwing a hashtag online for a day and hoping that everything (laughs) is going to make sense. Uh, It might be a good start in a way. Um, but there are so many discussions at the policy level that we need to have when it comes to making sure that people aren't uh, you know, relying on this type of thing to, to get by because it has all of these negative connotations as well. You know, you're not going to be in control of your actions, and this is when this emotional reaction, particularly when it comes to racism, uh, is going to manifest itself more broadly.
1: Based on the data you're seeing, based on all this information that you're compiling, do you think racism is being created? And I, and what I mean is, obviously, we're seeing a rise in racist incidents, but I'm just thinking, you know, are there racists being created out of this pandemic? Or the people perpetrating this, or the, or the people perpetrating any form of racism, they were already racist to begin with. I think it's an opportunity
0: uh, for people to try to talk to those who have uh, similar tastes and, and similar ways of looking at the world, uh, to make a situation look bigger than it is. Uh, you know, one of the problems that we have because of social media is you stay in this bubble. You're following people who think like you. You're right. talking to people who feel the same way about things. And in my line of work, I get it consistently. Uh, uh, My job is to ask a representative sample of people how they feel about something. Uh, And many times I find myself disagreeing with the majority, whether it is people in Vancouver or in British Columbia or in Canada, looking at the numbers in the United States and saying, how is this possible that 70% of people feel this way? But I have to leave leave that emotion aside because my Mm -hmm. job here is to act as a journalist, as somebody who is reporting on the findings. And, you know, most of the times my inbox is clogged with messages from people who say, well, all of my friends disagree with this and all of my friends (laughs) think that the virus originated here and it's all a sham and, you know, I should be able to go out there. Uh, It creates this bubble that becomes larger and larger because you think everybody feels the same way you do. And it's definitely problematic. It's not going to be something that is going to allow us to uh, conduct ourselves as a society the way we want to. And in a situation like this one, with job losses, with people losing revenue, with specific projects being postponed, uh, it's going to make it easier for those people to find somebody to blame and to make this a community that is not as welcoming as it used to be.
1: I'm going to ask you sort of a dumb question, and I'm asking it sort of facetiously, but I do want your genuine opinion about this. How come when we see a tragedy like the Nova Scotia attacks, we don't see an uptick in racism against white men or the Toronto van attack. We don't see an uptick of prejudice against chronically single men. Because if a portion of our society very idiotically conflates horrific crimes and cover-ups of the Chinese government to all Chinese people or an extremist Islamic terrorist attack to all Muslim people— You'd think that we'd also be dumb enough to conflate things like incel attacks to single males or shooting sprees to all white men, but we don't do that. No, it's not
0: something that happens, partly because of the way in which... We have been trained to look at this from the standpoint of coverage. Uh, you know, when we went through uh, all of the disappearances of women in the downtown east side mm-hmm. and we started to track those cases together. And, I, you know, I, I read a lot about that uh, when I was uh, doing my uh, UBC journalism studies uh, at the, a, uh, just a few years ago. Uh, you start to figure out how things are covered. And I remember being somebody who was new to the country. I just came to Canada back in 2000. Uh, every single story related to coverage of the downtown east side was always mentioning Central American drug dealers, Central American drug dealers. So you always <laughs> had to explain that this was something that was coming out of uh, somewhere else. You know, These are people who are responsible for this. And it was always somebody who was coming from a different uh, area of the world um, that was responsible for what was happening. And it it really struck me uh, that that was the way in which this was happening. Uh, It wasn't something that was entirely uh, focused on that particular group. But when Robert Pickton was detained, we never heard coverage on the radio or saw it on television that said, here's a you know, third-generation Canadian white person responsible of these heinous crimes. Uh, yeah. it's, it, it just doesn't work that way uh, because it doesn't fit the narrative that everything's fine here unless somebody who looks different than us is the one who's
1: responsible. Right. Do you think mainstream media still works that way? I think so in a way. I think part of the problem
0: uh, has to do, and I think there's definitely been uh, outlets that have dealt with this, but it has a lot to do with the creativity that somebody from the outside can bring. Uh, If you have a newsroom that is heavily populated with middle-aged white men, uh, it's going to be difficult to understand how certain things are going to resonate with other communities. You know, One of the right. examples is the idea of the wet market. Uh, you know, Our vision of a wet market as North Americans is going to be very different from the vision of the wet market that somebody in China might have. And you know, sure. it's definitely worth it for somebody to go out there and say, well, let's talk about the sea in this culture. This is how we look at this thing. And it's very different from what you're imagining here. Um, I think that's definitely part of the problem. Now, the other aspect would be, you also don't want to have a newsroom that is full of young people uh, who maybe don't have the experience that they require. You know, one of my favorite stories about this is uh, an article about Flavor Flav, uh, where the somebody who was writing this for the New York Times uh, believed that the song "911" is a joke was actually "9/11" is a joke, and it took uh, the New York Times three days to figure this out. So that's wow. also problematic. You know, you need to have that balance of somebody who's been there before, but also somebody who brings ideas from the outside, and I think that's definitely one of the problems that we have right now. It's difficult to start to understand um, where this is going to go if you don't have that kind of experience.
1: The wet markets thing is really fascinating to me because I was guilty of that as well. When I had Ian James Young on the show, I asked him about wet markets, and I asked him, you know, are we going to look at this practice differently? And, And he very eloquently and very compassionately, I should say, explained to me that not all wet markets are the same and they're different between regions, they're different within a region of China, and they, they are all vastly different. And that farmers markets here, the butcher shop here, you know, these are also wet markets effectively, right? Like it's a broad umbrella term. But that was one term where even I, as someone who thought that I was keeping in touch with the news and trying to get a nuanced point of view i fell for it you know i thought a wet market was this place where exotic animals were you know being slaughtered and kept in the same pens and and all this other stuff when that was just one type of wet market
0: exactly and and it's it's difficult to make sense of all of those things especially when you're looking at at international coverage. I think Mm -hmm. one of the benefits, if we could call them benefits of the pandemic, has been an added emphasis on international coverage. We have seen more coverage of things happening in Italy and Spain uh, than we ever did before. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are certain communities that can get by because of the services that they can access uh, from their home countries. You know, there's many channels uh, from India, many channels from China, but you know, there's been more international coverage in the news lately, and that's a good thing because it allows you uh, to have that information that you require to actually compare how Canada's doing versus other countries or how things are happening. But you know, once this is past us, are we going to go back uh, to the same type of story that we had before? Yeah, an, an Easter bunny stolen from a West Vancouver home, and it takes five minutes of your newscast. Is that where we're <laughs> heading back? Hopefully not.
1: What's wrong with that story, Mario?
0: (laughs) Maybe for the last two minutes and with a very
1: small voiceover. I think this pandemic has really provided a good opportunity for us to be more critical of media. And this is not bashing mainstream media. You know, I think so many journalists out there, at least all the ones that I've met, are really doing a good job and they're trying to do their best, but as you said, sort of creating that greater critical awareness of why certain language is used in some cases and then in almost a parallel case, different language is used. And, you know, when we talk about the the shooting sprees either in the U.S. or even here in some of those attacks, there's a tendency to kind of humanize the white perpetrator, whereas if it's someone else, there's they're covered in a much different way, right? There's no consistency.
0: (laughs) Oh, I I think that's definitely one of the problems that we have in, in, in trying to frame things. Yeah. Uh, And another problem that I see is uh, people who don't go beyond the headline. Uh, You become Mm -hmm. really upset when somebody posts something on Facebook or you read the tweet that has the headline and you don't read the article, you don't know what the, what the actual author was going for. Uh, I've never written a headline uh, for any of my articles because they taught us in journalism school that you don't spend time with that. That's the decision of the editor. Mm. And maybe you like the headline, maybe you don't. But if people only read the headline and they make observations based on that about your motivations for being a researcher, why you are here, uh, <sighs> did you flee something horrendous in your home country to end here? We got a problem. You know, it it has to go beyond that. And I think there's also been that difficulty for editors to figure out what type of headline they want to use. You know, Globe and Mail was severely criticized uh, for discussions about the life of the Nova Scotia shooter. Mm -hmm. I don't think they would have used the same words and the same tone to describe somebody of a different ethnicity.
1: On the topic of headlines, I found this out firsthand. I had the podcast with Ian Young All the feedback on it, universally, was like, what a great podcast, you know? People loved it. They loved him. And so then I wrote a Daily Hive article about it, and that's sort of my gig at the Daily Hive where I summarize a podcast that I did recently and some of the key themes that came out of it. And the headline I wrote, and I don't have it on me right now, but it was literally something like, yes, you can criticize Dr. Tam without being racist, like something like that. And I was in shock at the amount of negative feedback that that article, but I think that headline actually received. I knew the headline was a little spicy, but I was getting it from both sides. You know, on one side, I was this libtard, Trudeau, apologist, whatever. And then on the other side, I was this racist, uh, hateful Nazi or whatever. (laughs) And and literally the article did not editorialize anything that Ian said. I was just unpacking the argument that he had made in the podcast. But the way that was read, and, and I presume that most people that listen to the podcast now have listened to an episode before, so maybe they knew my style. They were not offended by that article, but Clearly, people who are unfamiliar with me, and there's way more of those people than there are uh, who are familiar with me, but clearly people who are unfamiliar with me were so offended on all sides of the spectrum. And I could, I was in shock, to be honest.
0: Well, and it usually goes in a very subtle way. Like, why is this person saying something that I don't want to hear? That's how it begins. <laughs> I get it consistently because of my line of work. You know, why yeah. are you here? Why aren't you in wherever you came from? Uh, why are you asking these questions? And, and, and it's also about the interpretation of the findings. Uh, you know, if you write something that says uh, two-thirds of Canadians feel this way, you get it from the ones that say, no, 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 it's actually the 34% that hate this and you should have written it differently. Then you right. do it differently. And there's always going to be that type of comment. Uh, <laughs> but when it, when it comes down to questions related to your origin or your ethnicity, that's when it becomes pretty painful. You know, you, I, I go through the stages where, mm. you know, somebody criticizes what I do or didn't like the findings or the party that they vote for is in third place and you start to get this. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything <laughs> about statistics. You spoke to 0.0003% of the population and me... Who, are, who is actually representative of 0.000000.1 of the population actually know what is happening. I mean, it's just ridiculous, but it goes like that. You know, you don't understand statistics, uh, so you're bound to say, well, you, you you should have talked to more people. You talk to more people, then it's your bias. If it's not your bias, then it's the fact that you weren't born in Canada. It never ends. It's just a yeah. way for people to say, I'm better prepared than you, and I'm willing to speak with my five followers uh, and we you know was smarter than you and, and we know exactly what is happening and, you know, go back to your country. Yeah. Guess what? This is my country. Yeah. you go back to your five followers.
1: <laughs> That's kind of the beauty with the public square. I didn't realize there were so many experts on so many things. <laughs> Especially now, I think it's been really interesting to look at the COVID-19 situation
0: and uh, looking at people who previously were only making, you know, some judgments related to uh, visual effects in movies or which restaurant has the Juicy as burger, mm-hmm. suddenly becoming experts in epidemiology, sociology, yeah. and everything else that you have to throw there. You know, everybody has an opinion on this, and it's understandable. And you know, I do that for a living; I measure it. Uh, but I'm not coming out there and saying uh, this percentage of Canadians who I disagree with are that are, are completely wrong about life. Uh, <laughs> but that's the problem about social media; it enhances the ability of people to feel that way, yeah. and it becomes impossible to counter that argument. You write back to them and say, "Well." This is how a poll is conducted, and it only enhances their sense of self-esteem. Ooh, he replied and said that I was wrong, which means I'm right. Exactly. I took the time to talk to you, and now it becomes an issue of, well, if he took the time to write to me about it, it means I'm on the right track. He's actually, you know, a spy for the Russian government.
1: Right. Fine. So be it. If that helps you sleep at night. So so setting aside some of the stuff that we see on social media, and we'll get into social media a little more uh, in a little bit. When we look at Vancouver as a city, I think as a stereotype, almost, we pride ourselves as being very progressive and inclusive. But obviously, at the same time, you know, we're seeing these incidents pop up. Do you think Vancouver is as inclusive? as we think we are?
0: I think it's a tough one to answer. You know, part of the problem that I see when I look at the way in which the city has been constructed as far as where the people are coming from and the places uh, where they assemble, uh, there's definitely moments and there's definitely areas where you might not feel as wanted as before. And I think Mm -hmm. it goes both ways. I think there's there's a tendency in areas that are not heavily populated uh, with minorities uh, to feel a little bit weird when they see somebody who's walking differently or who's speaking a different language. Mm. And there are certain areas of the city where you know you suddenly forget that you're in Canada because you're surrounded by people who are speaking a different language. So yeah. I think there's that sense of complexity about the way in which the city is built that definitely plays a role in this. Now, there's definitely a high level of support for progressive policies. And you know I think that's one of the reasons for uh, the last four four mayoral elections to have fallen the way they did. Um, Not a lot of support for something that is definitely coming from the hard right. Mm. Uh, We see it in the result of the federal election. You know, there hasn't been any conservative member of parliament in Vancouver for a long time. Uh, It's essentially a movement, you know, people going from the NDP to the liberals in most of the seats that are at stake. Uh, we're more progressive. That doesn't mean that there's people out there uh, who are willing to do things that are definitely regrettable. And you know, you look at the numbers. There's never been a situation where the conservative candidate in a riding gets five percent of the vote. Uh, it, it, there's definitely people who hold those beliefs, uh, mm-hmm. but they're not in a majority at any rate. Not now, and certainly not in the last few elections.
1: When it comes to this idea of inclusivity multiculturalism, all these things that at least we pride ourselves on, or a lot of people pride ourselves on this, where do you think our blind spot is? Because when it comes to racism, I have a bit of a mixed feeling. You know, I obviously believe that racism exists. I believe it's embedded in some of our institutions. I think racism rears its ugly head in waves sometimes, as we're seeing right now. But I also believe that we're probably one of the most racially tolerant societies on the planet. So, you know, without being complacent or thinking that we're the best or all the work has, has yet to be done, I try to balance that with the realities of, of of where we live. But where do you think our blind spots are in Vancouver?
0: Well, I think there's a difference, especially when you're looking into other places in the world that haven't even started this conversation. I think this this definitely places us in a very different situation. Uh, There's other countries that are racially diverse that haven't had the same discussions that we've had in Canada, that haven't had a specific process to start to reconcile with the First Nations, for instance. Mm -hmm. Other places within uh, Central America or South America that aren't doing this uh, similar situation in Europe. You know, most of the discussions related to those who are coming in from Africa have to do with becoming some sort of melting pot okay yes you're welcome to come here but you have to find a job which is going to be difficult to do in places like spain or italy where nobody's working already yeah also the problem of you know uh, you need to be part of the uh, things that we have here you need to adhere to canadian values as as a former conservative uh, leadership candidate uh, once put it well who defines those values? It's not going to be something that is uh, necessarily easy to do. You know, I became a citizen of this country in 2007. And when I was studying for the test, which was not particularly difficult, uh, it was interesting to look at the way in which the idea of the nation becoming what it is uh, was actually happening. And, it's welcoming in the sense of, okay, so this is what happened and this is how the country was founded and, you know, we're all welcome here. And what I really liked about the ceremony uh, was that the judge who was actually presiding told us never to hyphenate. said, just, you are Canadians. Call yourselves Canadians, you know. Yeah. Don't abandon your heritage. Don't abandon the things that you like. But don't go out there and hyphenate things. Uh, it's only going to... Uh, it's not something that I would recommend. And, you know, there's nothing in the documents that we're going to hand to you that say that you are, you know, somehow different than those who were born here or those who are still here. And it was a, a an incredibly powerful moment for me. Mm-hmm. And it definitely speaks about the way in which the country works uh, when it does, because we continue to see moments when it's not something that is happening that way. Yeah, And that is definitely part of the problem that you see here. Uh, I think, again, it's an opportunity. It's the moment when you feel that something is not right, when something is in your way, that you use the race car that you say, well, no, maybe this person shouldn't be here, or you know, this is all your fault kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's not it's not something that is inherently uh Canadian
1: in that sense. Now you did some polling on social issues as well recently and BC seemed to be more liberal on social issues, at least marginally than the rest of Canada. What were some of the interesting findings that you saw when looking at this data about social issues like immigration, LGBTQ issues across Canada and specifically within BC? Well, it's definitely...
0: Uh, a situation where the numbers are higher here than everywhere else in the country in terms of being
1: more progressive or liberal. much more yeah.
0: progressive uh especially i think it's an interesting situation where you're looking at the data tables from the from the research uh there's always this divide between alberta and, and, and bc on on many social issues but also on environmental concerns um, but it's a uh, Issues like LGBT rights, uh, the numbers, you you tend to get a situation where Ontario and Quebec are sort of a little bit uh, higher than the national average, but the numbers are always higher in British Columbia, Uh, more likely to say that you agree with same-sex marriage being legal, more likely to say that multiculturalism is good for the country, more likely to say that we should be a mosaic and not a melting pot. And that definitely speaks about the way in which people uh, in this province have grown to love those who are coming from other places and to establish those relationships with newcomers. And I think it's something that you don't see in other parts of the country, particularly in areas that are sparsely populated. You know, the numbers are going to be very different in rural Saskatchewan for many of these things, uh, mainly because many of them have never met somebody who actually immigrated to Canada. Yeah, so <laughs> I think That is definitely part of the problem. You have this urban-rural divide, but it's also something that is happening because of the way in which we deal with things. Uh, it's a place uh, where you know politics can be a blood sport and, and we've seen all of those situations uh, over the past few years when it comes to BC politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do tend to figure out ways to uh, be a community with those who are new to the country and those who want to stay here for the long run.
1: And again, back to what we were talking about at the start, if you are in a place where there are no people of color, (laughs) then the messaging you're getting becomes very important in how these people are being portrayed, right? So if all you're seeing is, you know, people of color are committing crimes and they're terrible people and whatever, then you almost internalize that of your impression of someone. It doesn't have to be necessarily negative. Like, I'm thinking about someone in the United States who might think that all Mexicans are just people that that come across the border and work and then go back home, right? Absolutely.
0: You know, it's, it's ultimately, it's a difficult situation because when you're looking into ways in which you are trying to figure out whether a person represents the entire country you run through those problems. Uh, when Stephen Harper was prime minister and I went back to Mexico to visit family or friends, I used to get it from my more politically minded friends. Oh man, your prime minister is terrible. And how <laughs> could he? And he hates everything. And it's just impossible. And, and, and then Justin Trudeau became prime minister. He's like, wow, your prime minister is great. You know, he truly represents the country. Like, well, guess what? Whoever wins represents the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people in the United States would shudder if uh, somebody, Who's new to this uh, assumed that every American was like Donald Trump.
1: Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a good proportion that that really like him.
0: <laughs> well, and and I think this is this is going to be an interesting thing to watch in the next few months. Uh, I think there was an expectation uh, from the Trump campaign that if the economy went well, they would have a high, a very easy time uh, trying to debate Joe Biden and winning the election. But unless there's some sort of economic recovery, it's going to be tougher. For Trump to get those votes. It's something that we do intend to, to look at uh, before the US election. Uh, but again, it, it's, it's really a question of, of the manipulation of emotions when it comes to winning campaigns in the United States. And right now, yeah. that emotion is fear. And suddenly, Joe Biden, who we never, ever thought about as presidential material just four <laughs> years ago, is suddenly the person that is the warm blanket instead of the wackiness that is coming out of the White House.
1: I guess that remains to be seen. But before we move too forward, the one thing I'm I'm curious about in terms of what you think, when we look at BC, we look at our progressivism or liberalism, however you'd like to define that. Is it a situation where, especially when we're talking about racism, is it a situation where the more exposure you have to a multicultural society, the more exposure you have To people of different ethnicities, the less racist you will become and perhaps the more welcoming you will become because then you will know people on a person to person basis and understand that people are just people.
0: I think that's definitely part of it, and you know, I think you see it in other subtle examples. Uh, we saw the debacle that the Bank of Montreal got into a few months ago when they uh, unexplicably harassed a customer who was First Nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that type of training is not something that happens uh, unless you, ha- you are somebody who has experiences. And and if your experiences were negative, if you grew up in a house where everything that was different was terrible, where a specific ethnicity was supposed to rob f- from you, where a specific ethnicity was supposed to harass you or to hurt you, uh, you're more likely to carry on with those biases when you try to establish a life for yourself. You come out of the house and then somebody there is going to be different and you're going to be going Back to the training that you had at home, so I think it starts at home, yeah. uh, but there's also been a lot of uh, moments in which uh, the way the schools are talking about this, for instance, discussions about uh, residential schools uh, I did a survey on this a few months ago, and the number of people who had no idea about residential schools was higher among those who were fifty five and over yeah and of it course. shocked me it's like wow, well. well Here's something that I knew about when I first came into the country, you know, one of the few nasty aspects of Canadian life that I was aware of when I was growing up in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And the over 55s are saying, no, this, this never happened.
1: Even though they grew up in that
0: era. <laughs> and and it's, it's basically because, you know, certain members of Generation X and millennials have read about this, have thought about this and are mm-hmm. willing to say, we don't want this to happen ever again. Uh, it's not as if the over fifty-five are saying, "Well, this was actually great." No, nobody's saying that necessarily. Uh, but that level of unawareness about something that was definitely clear for the rest of them, and I think that definitely plays a role in the way you behave around in, with, when you're dealing with residents of other ethnicities. You know, if mm-hmm. you grew up in a house where everybody who was a stranger was terrible, then somebody's going to show up at your bank, and you're going to
1: assume that they're there to rob you. And I think in that case, I am not defending the Bank of Montreal. They clearly had terrible protocols in that whole situation. But I also think in that case, if someone was not taught about how to look at the identification that First Nations can provide, and there was something about the name and, and the number of a child, and they can use the same number as a parent up until a certain age, because they had no exposure to it, they might immediately assume bank fraud. But there was clearly a gap in terms of educating the employees in terms of these situations.
0: Well, and, and it's something that the companies need to be more mindful of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you look at a
1: situation,
0: uh, I look at what I do, for instance, you know, I'm, I'm as far as people who are commenting about public opinion research or who are conducting surveys on their own, I'm the only one who wasn't born in this place. And it it <laughs> hasn't been something that affected me. I haven't, You know, had that situation where uh, a media outlet, for instance, would not want to talk to me or, you know, we don't trust what you're doing because you weren't from here. But I think it might be different if my accent was somehow thicker, if my skin was somehow Mm. browner. Uh, I don't know if I would be treated the same way. And it's definitely um, not something that anybody should experience.
1: Mario, I think you do amazing work and you're an expert in your field for a reason. I do have some reservations about trying to quantify feelings and moods and even opinions. And to be honest, I'm personally critical of the hyper-rational approach to anything because I truly do believe in a balance where uh, quantitative and qualitative methods of research and of understanding the world and allowing allowances for intuition can be tested and and discussed uh, properly because I feel like I mean hyper rational what I mean by hyper rational is you know if if you say uh, okay we have climate we have a climate crisis how do we solve it well the most rational solution is just kill all the humans right <laughs> that'll solve it that's the most rational easiest thing you can do but obviously we have systems of morality and An innate sense of survival where that doesn't make sense. So when we talk about research opinion polling, and and I'm not accusing you of any of this, I'm asking your opinion of how you overcome these issues. Sometimes people answer polls and they give answers that you think they want, or they hide their true feelings. And in market research, I know with my business background, market research can be quite difficult because You can't just ask someone what they want. A lot of times they don't know what they want until they see it or they see the product in use. And it can be really tough, especially in like binary polls that are conducted. And I don't know the backstory behind this, but I know that there was a poll recently about, you know, would you sit beside an Asian person on the bus? If that was the question, it's kind of a shitty question because the question should be, would you sit beside anyone on the, on the bus, right? I, I am familiar with that. Um, with that with that research, yeah. There I so, call it research. Well,
0: <laughs> we're being charitable today. I'm what just, is uh, crucial to this, and I think this is something that I think about all the time when I'm trying to uh, deal with the questions that you're posing. You know, How mm-hmm. do you know that this is real? How do you know that this is the best course of action? Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it has to do a lot with questionnaire development. Uh, yeah. For instance, if you're going to ask people, at a time when nobody's supposed to be riding the bus, you know, they could be equally uh, upset at sitting next to somebody of any ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I I didn't think that was a good question. But, you know, part of it is uh, having that proper questionnaire design makes a lot of sense. You know, I have clients who come to me and they assume that what they want to know is the most important thing in the universe. So, you know, this is, this is the cause, this is the thing that needs to be top of mind for all British Columbians. Well, the only way to test it is to ask about specific questions, specific issues. Um, you can't start the questionnaire by saying, how important is issue A in the world? Well, now that you put issue A in my mind, I think it's pretty important. Well, that mm-hmm. doesn't work that way because you need to make other sorts of plans and there's budgets and there's governments and there are certain levels of things that you need to do. Mm-hmm. The other thing that has become a practice from some uh, uh, lesser institutions is to not allow people to be undecided. And, you know, there was an example a few years ago of, you know, should we have paid money to Omar Khadr? Yes or no? Uh, what? Uh, <laughs> how, can I, how am I supposed to digest the craziness and the vastness of this case into something that is going to fit a headline. And, and, you know, it's just not something that you can do. I mean, you always need to allow people to be undecided. Um, But, you know, we're heading into this part of the research industry uh, where because of the cost of data collection, uh, everybody thinks they can write questionnaires and they're basing them off uh, what I used to call the cosmopolitan back pages. You know? <laughs> uh, okay, do you love pizza? Yeah, I love pizza. I had pizza yesterday. Uh, maybe I'll have pizza tomorrow. That's not a survey. That's just a combination of things that is there for your amusement. But you know, people can't make business decisions based on this. And it's not a good... Uh, way to gauge the feelings uh, of an entire country by asking them to click yes or no on whether Omar Khadr should have received money from the federal government, Mm -hmm. like they're rating a hamburger.
1: (laughs) So do you put almost like an artistic consideration in? Because it's not just the matter of collecting data and crunching the numbers. I mean, you are basically problem-solving in terms of how do I get the truest, most representative opinions from people, and how do I elicit it in a way that is true, right? Like, it sounds like there's obviously a lot of science behind what you do, and obviously that's stats, but in terms of formulating the questions, and in terms of solving this puzzle, it sounds like there's a lot of art involved as well.
0: There is. I think it's definitely more creative uh, from the standpoint of the questionnaire design. You know, the the order in which you ask things uh, can play a role in the way the numbers are going to look, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could ask people if they're voting for Party A or Party B, and then maybe asking uh, if they feel the same way about their leaders differently. I mean, everybody has their own system of doing things. Uh, what I find that works for me is, you know, people just cannot be placed into a, into the uh, a polling station immediately if you're asking about voting intention. Yeah. You know to ask about issues. You need to ask about leaders. And then you ask whether they're voting for a party. And then you ask, are you voting for a party because you like the party, you like the leader, you dislike something, which happens very often that people are just gravitating towards somewhere uh, Mm. because they don't like any of the other choices. Uh, But I think part of it is also um, having the ability to look people in the eye and say, this is what the data is showing us. Uh, I've had both experiences uh, working for people who want to run for office and going to meetings where you say to somebody, okay, please do not mortgage your house. This is not in the cards. Uh, you're not <laughs> going to be able to win. I don't care what party A is telling you. Uh, There's definitely no uh, opportunity for you to try to win this election. And your name is going to be on Wikipedia for the rest of your life as the person who finished fourth in this writing. Yeah. And And they take the advice and say, thank you. Okay, I'm going to Move on to other things. And there's other people who say, no, 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 the party's telling me that I can win. Well, of course they are. They need bodies and they need people to be in the ballot. Uh, Not something that is going to happen. You came for me for advice. I ran the numbers, and this is what the numbers are telling you. You have to have that honesty, and you you can have that honesty when you're looking into specific things. Like, well, there might be a likelihood of this happening if certain conditions are met. Well, I Mm -hmm. suppose if a meteorite strikes Earth tomorrow, there won't be an election. So
1: there, that's a circumstance. (laughs) Let's talk about COVID-19 a little more. You You did some opinion research on this, and I looked at some of the findings that you had. And what was interesting to me is you found a gender gap. It seems like men and women feel differently about the crisis and moving into phase two and things reopening again. Can you sort of explain to me what you found and the key findings in that gender gap? Well, it's been probably one of the most
0: fascinating times uh, to be looking at the gender gap in British Columbia and in Canada uh, with COVID-19. Uh, definitely more appetite for men to go about their daily lives, uh, to believe that they don't need a vaccine to do specific things, uh, to also assume that this is going to end fairly quickly. And women... Uh, who from March uh, and even early April were saying, oh, this is going to be longer. We need to be careful. We need to wash our hands. We need to make sure that we don't expose ourselves to anything uh, that could harm our communities and our homes uh, by going out. Uh, and it's definitely there. I think what's interesting where you're looking into the idea of reopening the uh, the economy, the conversations that are happening in the kitchen uh, tables are, are going to be a lot of fun i mean you see a lot of men who are saying let's go to the restaurant and and women who are saying you i i don't not only am i not going but you're not going either right because this thing is out there and i think it definitely uh Looks when I look at these findings, uh, there are certain industries that are going to be affected deeply, and I'm thinking specifically about gyms and fitness facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, fewer than half of women saying I'm not going there unless there's a vaccine. You can put all the plexiglass in the world and wash whatever you have to wash and do things differently and have some sort of social distancing in place, uh, but you're still saying goodbye to half of your possible customers. So yeah, it's going how many to be men are saying
1: how many men are saying that they won't they'll go back to
0: Sixty percent of men say they'll go, wow. and forty-six percent of women say they will go. <laughs> uh, but it's it's definitely troubling. You know, there's we we need to figure out a way to to make all of these things work. And I think there's the situation of everybody dreaming of a vaccine that is going to be happening quickly. Um, you know, this is going to change the way in which we're we're dealing with our lives and. What's interesting looking into the, the whole uh, uh, data that we've had on, on, the, on this particular issue of, of the pandemic is uh, uh, women uh, sort of looked at this in March and April and said, okay, this is where it's going. And the numbers have been stable. Whereas men keep saying, well, I think we'll be fine by Easter. No, I think we'll be fine by Victoria Day. No, I'm pretty <laughs> certain that we'll be able to go out for Canada Day. And women are saying, Christmas, maybe. But that's it, and you know, men, uh, you know, being a little more stubborn, uh, or I guess we could say hopeful, and women (laughs) saying, "No, this isn't going to be as easy as you think," and you know, you'd better get used to the situation that we have right now because it's not going to change unless a vaccine happens tomorrow.
1: Yeah, how do you explain that, Mario? How come men like us are so dumb? How? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think.
0: What is fascinating, too, is it's something that is happening with men our age. You know, it's the 35 to 54-year-olds who are saying, no, no, this is fine. We should be able to go out there. I want to enjoy things. Uh, you know, something that isn't even remotely in the horizon, such as going to a live sporting event. There's more men that say, yeah, I want to go to a live sporting event. So what is going to happen when somebody scores a goal? You can't mm-hmm. even high five if you're yeah. going to be two meters from each other. Uh, I think, you know, part of it is natural stubbornness, uh, but also the idea that that you're invincible. And it's funny Mm. because, you know, six months ago, we were looking into some surveys where we were comparing generations and, and, you know, everybody likes to write about millennials and, oh, those millennials, they want to do everything and they aren't really, uh, you know, helping any industries and all they want is avocado toast and whatever (laughs) you want. But now they are actually exercising as much caution as baby boomers. Uh, Right. Weird, because, you know, for three, four years, Generation X was riding high. You know, boomers won't get out of their homes and they won't give us money. And millennials are complaining. It's like, oh, this is great. You know, for the next five, six years, we can just go through life, no problem. And now it's the generation that is saying, I need to reopen the economy. I'm starting to get tired of having my kids at home. I want to get a beer. Right millennials who are saying, well, aren't we supposed to take care of each other? And the baby boomers saying, don't bring those germs into my home. (laughs) So it's weird. Now it's Generation X that is going to be blamed for many things.
1: Yeah. I want to be very clear. You are right. I fall into that age bracket, 35 to 55, I think you said. But I am 35. I am an elder millennial, sir. When I turned 35 and I took one of my first surveys, we were
0: testing a survey back at one of the companies where I worked. In that moment, when you have to choose the next demographic, that's where it really hit me. So, but I used to be here. I used to be here. No, 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 no. You're now here for the next 19 years. So.
1: Yeah, man. I still had an arm in the tw- in the 20s. You know, I still have the arm in the 25 to 34. And now you've put me with 50-year-olds all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen to all of us. No, fair enough. Hey, you're pretty savvy on social media You are also a regular on what we can call mainstream or establishment media as well. What is your take on the effect of social media messages? Because, you know, even though big mainstream media is entrenched in social media, social media still thrives on the alternative, right? Like this podcast exists in a space that is alternative to the mainstream, and it's not antagonistic to the mainstream. But I try to offer something a little different. And what I find is with the Rebel News, Canada Proud, and, you know, all this junk that is particularly weaponized, right-wing, xenophobic, anti-progressive, anti-mainstream media agendas, they do very well on social media. And it must not only be this idea that they're conning people or suckering people into feeling that way, but they must be converting people as well, right? With like, you're getting fake news, you're getting half truths. They are changing minds, aren't they?
0: It's definitely problematic. I think it is happening, uh, partly because you have certain elements of society that are supposed to be celebrating the work of reporters and are choosing to not do that and to actually criticize them for doing their job. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mexico is not immune to this Uh, Mexican president right now uh, is almost like a version of Trump as far as you know complaining about media outlets claiming Mm. that everything is fake news you know this is a man who two months ago claimed that religious amulets shielded him from COVID-19 wow now if you are a newspaper and you're not going to come out and criticize the head of government by doing something like this, then we have a problem. But we don't have a problem as far as media coverage. We have a problem of people who follow the president blindly. And Mm -hmm. if he says that the news is fake, then it is for that particular group. Similar situation in the U.S. Uh, You know, I think part of the problem uh, with media recently has been, and I'm not Suggesting that it has to do with dwindling resources, but newscasts are now shorter than they used to be you're cramming more and more stories into them, mm-hmm. and so the sound bites that are coming out are not going to be as as important or allow somebody to express themselves in a way like I'm doing right now with you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, i I remember one of the first interviews that I gave uh and I was very happy about that, and I had you know friends and family assembled to watch it. And my soundbite was when something like this went, uh, it is clear that the BC liberal party is in trouble, uh, but there are still two years to go before the election and an opportunity for them to try to rekindle with the base, especially because the level of support with households earning an income of more than a hundred thousand dollars is high. And so is their support in the Okanagan. So that was the the glorious soundbite that I had. You
1: memorized it and that's a long soundbite
0: for TV. It's a big one. <laughs> I turn on the television, and the only things that came out of my mouth were the busy liberals are in trouble. <laughs> So you go, yeah, uh, maybe this isn't the venue for this type of analysis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is definitely part of the problem. You know, <laughs> if you're going through a situation and, you know, we have been discussing this before, you know, if you go through the three headlines and you don't read the articles, if you just get a little bit of that soundbite, it's going to be difficult to look at that. And the other problem is we're gravitating towards the news sources we like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you're missing out on the opportunity to look at something that is going to be different. Uh, Because part of the problem, and I think we have a good example of this in the 2016 election, is um, the illusion that you have to be nasty to everybody or that if you're covering something negative from one campaign, you have to cover something negative from another campaign. Uh, Emails of Hillary Clinton versus Trump, sexual harassment allegations, okay, we're going to... essentially treat that in the same fashion and that is the way in which we're going to do it. And we're starting to see a little bit of that with the coverage of the Joe Biden harassment allegations as well. You know, mm-hmm. there's a tendency for them to say, if we don't cover this, people are going to say we're biased. Well, whatever you cover, the people who vote for Trump are going to say you're biased. So, you yeah. know, carry on and do your job.
1: Yeah. No, that's a fair assessment for sure. It's an interesting space. And again, I I believe in a balance of being media literate and being critical of media, but also, you know, not throwing. Mainstream media under the bus. And, and and for, for the reasons that we talked about earlier, you know, I've all the journalists I've met in the city are incredible and they work tirelessly. You know,
0: something people say, oh, I get my news from social media. What are you clicking? Because you're not clicking to your friend's blog. You're clicking to a newspaper. You're clicking to a TV station. You're clicking to a radio station. It's so misleading to say, I don't need to subscribe. I don't need to pay because everything I get on social media, that's linking somewhere. It's
1: not linking to your neighbor. Do you think social media provides the space to align with how we really feel? Or can it actually change our minds on things? You know, I think there's an opportunity Uh, for people to get
0: to know each other. There's people I've met through social media because I commented on something and they have become my friends. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, people who you didn't even know lived in the same city and you you suddenly comment on something. Uh, And it's not people who agree with most of the things that I do necessarily. It's just, you know, you find certain things uh, that are palatable in a person and and you try to establish some sort of friendship. Uh, But you have to be open to that. And I think part of the problem that we have, especially on Twitter, is the confrontational nature of, of, of things. And, you know, yeah. people, you, you, you post something and then somebody else says, no, you're wrong and I'm right. It's not going to lead to any sort of meaningful discussion. Uh, but ultimately, I think that is part of the problem that you have here. Uh, mm. uh, just a few weeks ago, there was somebody who took one of those Insta polls, uh, which are essentially your, your website has an opportunity for people to vote on it. And it was... The numbers on that particular thing, which is which is obviously not scientific,
1: mm-hmm. and it's
0: not something, and it's something that the media outlet itself said. You know, this is just for fun. Take the survey. Tell us if you want to be vaccinated against COVID nineteen. Well, uh, you can manipulate a bunch of people to click on that repeatedly. There's ways to go back and vote on it. And you know, I was getting it from all sorts of crazy people with no names and no faces uh, who claimed that I was. Uh, changing the data because the data that I had which was actually representative said that 74% of people wanted to get a COVID-19 shot yeah Uh, where do you start you know they're, they're actually you know accusing me of having a time machine and going back and changing things or, or <laughs> you, know, you know, this is something that is not scientific. And there's no way for you to respond to something like that because it only makes them bolder and say, well, of course we know it's true. And it, it's so yeah. instead of establishing a relationship where you can discuss something and maybe learn something from the other person and the other person learns something from you, it's better to walk away. And, you know, it's called social media for a reason. We're supposed to be connecting with each other, but it's become only a place where we can, you know, scream at each other and pretend that somebody's listening.
1: (laughs) Well, on that note, if someone wants to scream at you over the internet, or they actually want to have a real conversation, Mario, how do they stay up to date with your work? How do they follow you? Well,
0: uh, all of the surveys that we conduct and uh, links to the articles that I write uh, for Glacier Media are on researchco.ca. Uh, and I'm a Twitter. It's at Mario underscore Canseco. There's somebody else who took the Mario Canseco without the underscore. And uh, yeah, he's in New York. He's a Trumper. Don't follow him.
1: <laughs> Make sure you get that underscore in. Yes, please. Otherwise you'll
0: say, whoa, this isn't the guy who was talking to Mo right now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, hey man, I appreciate your time. I'm really in awe of the work that you do. And and to be honest, I think you're an underappreciated resource in this city, but it makes me happy every time that I see your name in the paper, or I hear you on the radio, or I see you on TV. I really do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to chat with me on, on a lot of your findings recently. So thank you for this, and please do keep me posted on all the polling that we discussed. I'm really interested to see where it goes.
0: Definitely. We will keep it going. You know, this is a, there's a part of the business that pays the bills, but this is an important service. And because of all of the craziness and all of the misinformation and the bad data collection, the work that we do that is uh, for the public is more important than ever. Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much, Mario. Thank you so much, Mo. People, he's the public opinion maestro. He's the president of Research Co. He is Mario Canseco. And I am Moomir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.